This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This Is Democracy. This week, we are going to return to the Middle East. We did an episode a few weeks ago with Peter Beinart on uh, the conflict between Israel and Hamas. And today, we're going to take uh, an even more historical deep dive. We're going to look at the 1970s, which I think historians have come to agree is a period of major transformation in the region. And we're going to look at what happened in the 1970s and how the experience of that crucial decade had deep influence upon the events that we're seeing today and probably will continue to have deep influence upon where we go from where we are today in the region. This is a case where history is not only part of the past, but really is ever present in our contemporary conflicts and our contemporary efforts to understand the conflicts around us. We're fortunate to be joined by a person who's a close friend and someone who I think is one of the really great scholars of uh, the Middle East from the 1960s to the present. Uh, This is Salim Yacoub. He's a professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and director of UCSB's Center for Cold War Studies and International History. Salim, it's so good to have you on the podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Salim Yacoub is the author of three books that I highly recommend to all of our listeners. His first book, Containing Arab Nationalism, is really, I think, as close to the definitive work as is possible on the Eisenhower Doctrine in the Middle East, which was really the first American Cold War doctrine for um, major influence, even perhaps for attempted dominance in the region. Uh, Salim's second book, which is really one of my favorites, uh, in Perfect Strangers, Americans, Arabs, and the U.S.-Middle East Relations in the 1970s. This is a book that looks at events in the Middle East, but also within the United States and the emerging Arab-American community, which becomes very important, as Salim shows, to American politics in the 1970s. It's also a book filled with wonderful anecdotes about Woody Allen and Henry Kissinger and various other individuals, so I encourage all of our listeners to read it. And Salim's most recent book, Winds of Hope, Storms of Discord. What a great title. The United States since 1945, and, and that title would certainly apply to the present as well as the entire period from 1945 to the present. Uh, Salim has written uh, many important articles and uh, other um, chapters on U.S. foreign policy, on the Middle East, and on Arab-American political activism. Before we turn to our conversation with Salim, we have, of course, our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? To Israel, a Widow. To Israel, a Widow. Wow. Let's hear it. Isaac Singer once said, you were an encounter with the supposedly dead, and I suppose he is right. You're a land of old men and infants held tight, and sandy ancient ruined coasts. All of them were always supposed to be ghosts. Few wars can be fought with history, but you have fought them all, have saved a generation from fighting back the fall. Yet though you have somehow survived on promises that you revived, it must be said you've built yourself a cage. No war should be fought with rage. 
the grandchildren of the widower, the children of the hollowed, held in their tunnels underground, are lost and must be found. Your neighbors remain, to say the least, uncharitable, lips smacking for the feast, break through the garden fence, can there be any recompense? No, I am convinced all moral questions will remain unanswered. You are alive, and soon you must have peace. If only so, it might be said, all had a chance to count their dead. I, I love the doggerel in there, uh, Zachary. What, what is your poem about? My poem, it's hard to explain. I, I'm not sure I, I perfectly understand what I was trying to get at either, but I think it's, it's sort of an attempt to understand the, 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 the place uh, of Israel today, uh, but also in particular from the perspective uh, of the 1970s, a period when Israel was uh, still led in large part by a, a generation which um, was defined by the Holocaust, but it was also beginning uh, to, to really uh, develop its own sort of distinct Israeli identity that was still shaped um, by uh, that the sort of last exile uh, to Israel um, from Europe and and other parts of the Middle East, uh, and in some cases from within the territory of Israel, um, and 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 to understand that mindset, but also to apply that uh, to today, and how that history informs uh, this moment of, of violence uh, between Israel and Hamas, um, and maybe the lessons we can draw from these many decades of conflict. I, I love the arc in your poem, Zachary, from Isaac Beshevik Singer, who sort of represents the the early uh, generation of European uh, Ashkenazi Jews who, who uh, settle Israel, and then, of course, the generational change that, that I sort of feel in your poem as it goes through to, to where we are today, which is a Middle East that looks very different, of course, from the world of Isaac Beshevik Singer in the 1950s and 60s, right? Yes, very much so. Salim, maybe that's a, a great point of entry. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the of the episode, you're one of a number of historians. You're one of the leading historians making the case that the 1970s, uh, this period about a quarter century after World War II, um, that the 1970s is a real turning point for the region and, and also for U.S. policy. H how should we begin to understand this? Sure. Uh, and first, I just want to say uh, uh, thanks for sharing that poem, Zachary. It's very powerful. I'm going to want to go back and read it again, listen to it again, and linger over it. Uh, but um, in answer to your question, Jeremy, uh, Jeremy the, um, the 70s, yeah, really are a, a very uh, pivotal decade um, for a lot of reasons and in a lot of places, but certainly for the uh, history of the Middle East and the history of U.S. involvement in that region. I mean, what you see in the 70s is the um, you know, sort of the, the last vestiges of uh, European imperialism uh, being um, removed with the uh, British withdrawal from the Persian Gulf region in the, in the first couple of years of the decade. Um, you know, the French had, had uh, vacated North Africa in the previous decade and earlier than that. Um, and so what, what you see then is a, a new... Um, or maybe the continuation of a previous era in which the superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, becoming more and more uh, active in that region. Um, it's also, um, and also, you know, they're bringing the Cold War struggle you know, to the region in a way that uh, hadn't quite happened previously. Um, 
also, I mean, certainly the, the 1973 war is very uh, key for all sorts of reasons that we'll probably get into. Um, it's, you know, during and shortly after that war that the um, power of the oil-producing Middle Eastern states, and in this case, particularly the Arab states, because they actually mount an embargo against the United States and some Western countries, uh, becomes, you know, uh, unavoidable. Uh, you know, it becomes impossible to ignore. And of course, the the lingering uh, after effects of the oil embargo and of the uh, OPEC price increases are going to uh, last for the remainder of the decade and into the into the following one. Um, and you know, also the the manner in which the Arab-Israeli War of 1973 um, ends and the kind of diplomacy that uh, comes in its wake sets the agenda for Arab-Israeli peacemaking for uh, for years and in some you know arguably decades to come. So it's um, and then I guess you could I would just add that uh, if you fast forward to the closing years of the decade, you start seeing the emergence of political Islam as a really powerful force, uh, primarily with the Iranian revolution of 1978 to 1979. But there also uh, were some pretty important events taking place in the Arab world. The, the seizure of the um, of the Grand Mosque in Mecca in 1979, mm -hmm. you know, right around the same time that the uh, Iranian hostage crisis begins. Um, and if you, you know, if you want to count, consider the Middle East in its more in a, in a broader geographical um, frame, you could look at the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan also right around that time in December 1979 as ushering in a whole new set of issues that will define the last years of the Cold War and set the agenda for the way in which the Cold War ends. Certainly, you've given us a sense of the density of conflict and change occurring uh, in that in that decade. Uh, Zachary, you had a question. Yeah, well, why was the 1973 war, which you mentioned, so transformative for Jews, Arabs, Muslims, and also for for many Americans? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, well, certainly, it's transformative for Arabs and Israelis because it sort of place puts the Arab-Israeli conflict into a new dimension. You know, the, the immediately pre, uh, preceding years, you know, between 1967 and 1973, were ones in which the Israelis were occupying the lands that they had uh, taken over in that war, and they they sort of felt um, invincible. They didn't think that they really needed to um, take. Um, Seriously, the diplomatic overtures that uh, the Egyptian government under uh, President Sadat had um, extended to them early, you know, earlier in the decade, uh, they felt that they could um, uh, really hold out for a much more dramatic set of concessions coming from the Arab side. And essentially what happens with the 1973 war, which is on the Arab side waged by Egypt and Syria primarily, is that it kind of shocks the Israelis out of their complacency and forces them to confront the fact that they actually really are still vulnerable. And that in turn uh, you know, makes it increasingly clear to them that they have to reach some kind of political accommodation with their Arab neighbors, uh, perhaps on terms you know, not quite as favorable as the ones that they had been 
holding out for previously. And it's also, um, it's, it, from the Arab side, it's important because it uh, rekindles a sense of pride or restores a sense of pride that had been very seriously da damaged by the debacle of 1967. Um, and in fact, I mean, from the standpoint, at least of Egypt, it's psychologically very important because Egypt and Sadat feel that they need to show the world, and maybe more particularly the United States and Israel, that they're not total pushovers. That there are, you know, that Egypt is a force to be reckoned with. And having made that case, even though militarily the war ends up uh going quite badly for both Egypt and Syria. Nonetheless, because they do a lot better than they did in 1967, that restores a, a measure of respect and maybe more importantly, self-respect. And that gives at least Sadat the confidence to move forward um, and enter into um, increasingly intimate peace negotiations with Israel, you know, at first brokered by the United States, but uh, eventually face-to-face. -face. I don't want us to jump too quickly to the present. I want us to stay in the 70s, but it, the question really has to be asked. Uh, many have made an analogy between the October 2023 Hamas attack on Israel and the 1973 uh, attack by the Arab states on, on Israel. It, it, do you see an analogy between those two events? Well, I mean, there, there are some similarities, but I, in the end, I would say they're kind of superficial. I mean, I guess the, the you know, one, obviously it's, a, it's an attack on Israel, although in the 1973 case, it's not an attack on Israel per se, it's an attack on Israeli forces in uh, the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights. But I, nonetheless, it's, a, it's an attack that the Israelis are not prepared for and uh, is much more damaging to the Israelis than anyone thought possible. Of course, the major difference uh, between 1973 and 2023 is that this is the attack by Hamas is uh, you know, primarily against civilians. It's, um, it, it, it entails not uh, traditional military methods, but really horrific um, and you know, close up of forms of attack that were, of course, recorded in in very grisly ways. That and so the the, the level of shock, I think, extends. It, it's a it's a different kind of shock. It's a much more visceral sort of shock, and I think it is extended. It has extended much more um, powerfully around the world than, and especially the Western world, than the shock of 1973 did. You know, partly because of the nature of the attack, uh, and also because of the nature of uh, of media now, as opposed to fifty years ago. One of the things that's striking about the seventy three war, to me as a historian, Salim, and I wonder if it, if if you react the same way, is how this this terrible war, uh, and a war that uh, initially looked like it might uh, lead to the collapse of Israel, and then, as you said turns around relatively quickly with with Israel occupying for a short time more territory than it had before the war. Correct. Um, how, how this terrible war then 
leads to a peace process. Um, first of all, do you do you see a connection between uh, what it, what many call the Camp David process that eventually leads to an agreement between Israel and Egypt, uh, brokered in part by the United States? Do you see a strong connection there, and how should we understand that connection? Oh yeah, there is a very strong connection. I mean, I would frame it in the following way: that the the war and um, its immediate aftermath opened up a new phase in which it was widely recognized that some sort of diplomatic process between Israel and its Arab neighbors uh, was both possible and necessary. I mean, on that, virtually everyone agreed. The difference was on the uh, scope and nature of that diplomatic process. There was, uh, at, at the end of the war, a, an emerging international consensus that what really needed to happen was uh, some sort of comprehensive settlement uh, between Israel on the one hand and its Arab neighbors on the other, you know, with the Palestinians playing some kind of role, although that was not clearly understood as yet. And as a result of this process, you know, according to this vision, you would have a full Israeli withdrawal from all of the territories occupied in 1967. That would be the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, the Sinai Peninsula. And um, in exchange for that withdrawal, the Arab states would uh, extend recognition to Israel and commit to living in peace with Israel, which was something they had not previously done and in, in, in most cases continued to refuse to do in the years after 1960, 1973. So that was the emerging um, consensus that you start to see in late 73, early 1974. Um, but there's also, there's a contrary scenario. And this is the one that is put forward most powerfully and um, um, resourcefully by Secretary of State Henry Kissinger who does not think that it would be a good idea for the United States to uh, pressure Israel to withdraw from all of the territory occupied in 1967. He thinks that a more stable uh, scenario is one in which Israel is allowed to hold on to significant portions of that occupied territory. Now, we can, we can later talk about why he felt that way, but that was what he uh, wanted to do. And so what Kissinger sets out to do, and it's really a, a pretty remarkable diplomatic performance, is he, um, he brokers or he encourages the development of a dialogue between Egypt and Israel. He, he quite early intuits that Anwar Sadat of Egypt, although he would much prefer a comprehensive settlement in which uh, Israel withdraws from all of the occupied territory from 1973. <clears throat> Nonetheless, and I'm talking about Sadat now, <clears throat> would be willing to accept some a more bilateral arrangement where Egypt gets back the Sinai and the remaining Arab territories are either, you know, either remain under Israeli control or their status is, you know, less certain. I mean, the sine qua non for Sadat is getting back the Sinai. And he's willing to um, to take a less uh, hardline view regarding the other occupied territories. Kissinger, you know, very brilliantly senses this, you know, almost immediately after the war ends. So Kissinger, you know, very skillfully um, cultivates Sadat, and you know, takes advantage of the fact that Sadat is uh, willing to be a lot more 
uh, conciliatory in negotiations with Israel than other Arab parties, especially um, uh, Assad, Hafez al-Assad of, of Syria, is prepared to be. And so through a series of very complicated and um, clever diplomatic um, initiatives, he manages to sideline Syria, although that takes that process takes a, a couple of years, and it's it's something that Assad himself is not quite aware is is occurring until it's too late for him to stop it. Um, he ends he brings an end to the Arab oil embargo, and he um, essentially puts in place a diplomatic process where Egypt withdraws from the confrontation with Israel. And the beauty of that, from Kissinger's perspective, is that it results in the subtraction of Egyptian power from the Arab-Israeli equation. And once that has been accomplished, the ability of the remaining Arab actors, Syria, Jordan, the Palestine Liberation Organization, you know, these are the other parties that have territorial claims um, that they want to see satisfied, their ability to get those claims satisfied is sharply diminished in the absence of Egyptian power. Um, and that, in a, in a sense, makes it impossible for another Arab-Israeli war like the one that occurred in 1973 to break out. And indeed, if you look over the history over the last five decades, there's been plenty of really, really horrific strife, but there has been no general Arab-Israeli war of that sort. And you know that achieves Kissinger's objectives of First, removing a flashpoint that he fears could spark a, uh, a superpower confrontation, but it also eases the pressure on Israel and makes it possible for Israel to um, take its time about uh, considering withdrawal from any other occupied territories. And you know, as we've seen, the um, the extent to which Israel has relinquished territories after giving up the Sinai Peninsula to, to Egypt, that was the big um, key that Egypt, that was the key gain that Egypt made. And that was realized not under Kissinger, but under Jimmy Carter a few years later with Camp David. Once Egypt has the Sinai Peninsula back, it's out of the war. And then Israel's occupation of the remaining territories is fortified. Um, now, obviously, the conflict has taken ups and downs. The diplomacy has gone through ups and downs ever since that time. But I think the key ingredients, the key sort of strategic um, realities that we need to keep in mind to understand, you know, what kind of diplomatic scenarios have been possible in the years since 1973, um, we need to keep in mind this uh, achievement of Henry Kissinger of of pulling Egypt out of confrontation with Israel and um, thereby, in his view, making the diplomacy more manageable. Right, right. And this is this is something uh, many of us have chewed on for a long time, right? How to evaluate uh, Kissinger's uh, diplomatic shuttle diplomacy and his efforts to, as you say, take Egypt out of what had been a coalition of anti-Israeli states. Uh, mm -hmm. w one other point I thought I'd, I'd add for you to comment on, and then I know Zachary has a question too, is part of what he's also doing is making the United States the most powerful external actor in the region. He's sidelining the Soviet Union, which had oh, yeah. been an ally of Egypt, right? And, yes. and that, of course, has implications for the United States in the region, taking us all the way up to the Iraq war, correct? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, essentially, um, what Camp David accomplishes, and this is often missed because it was um, it wasn't something that Jimmy Carter, I think, really was focusing on. I mean, he really, I think Carter genuinely was trying to make peace between Arabs and Israelis. But one byproduct of the Camp David Agreement is that with, you know, Egypt is removed from confrontation with Israel. It enters into an alliance with Israel, I mean, with the United States, uh, whereby it starts receiving nearly as much uh, economic and uh, other kinds of aid as Israel does for some years. Um, and that's a huge strategic blow to the Soviet Union. And again, that gets masked because the Soviet Union in some ways is more visibly active in the region in the years thereafter. I mean, it really, you know, it, it flexes its muscles. It, um, you know, it has all kinds of uh, uh, agreements uh, and makes various diplomatic gains on the Arabian Peninsula with its relationship with South Yemen. And, and you know, further to the east, it's uh, invading and occupying Afghanistan. It's uh, cementing its strategic alliance with Syria. It's doing all these things that are on the surface fairly menacing, but that masks the underlying diplomatic reality, which is that the Soviet Union has basically been frozen out of Arab-Israeli diplomacy and becoming increasingly irrelevant to it. And then, of course, not it's not too much longer after that that the Soviet Union itself ceases to exist. In the United States, um, even though it had already been flexing its muscles pretty um, aggressively in the Middle East during the 1980s. And for that reason, I sometimes argue that uh, the Cold War, the post-Cold War era began a decade earlier, hmm. decade early in the Middle East. Uh, nonetheless, by the time we get to the early 90s, it's unmistakable because the Soviet Union has ceased to exist and the United States really is now the sole remaining superpower. And its uh, ability to call the shots is made even more um, unmistakable by the victory in the first Gulf War of 1991. Right, right. Zachary? In, in this context of bilateral agreements and a sort of uh, cooling of the conflict during this period, why, why, does, why do these efforts fail to produce a, a Palestinian state and achieve a two-state solution? Was that the point of these efforts or... In, 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 why do the, the sort of claims to statehood of the Palestinian people during this period fail to be represented um, at these uh, in these major agreements? Well, th that's a great question. I mean, there are lots of different aspects aspects to it. I mean, on one level, it's uh, you can answer you can answer it by pointing out that the gap between if we're talking first in the early 1970s or in the aftermath of the 1973 war. The gap between Palestinian aspirations and um, reality was just uh, unbridgeable. Now that gap narrows in the in the years ahead because essentially what happens is the Palestinians scale back their ambitions in ways that make them at least theoretically compatible with Israel's continued existence. So if you know on the in the early 1970s the formal position of the Palestine Liberation Organization was um, the liberation of all of Palestine, essentially the dismantling of the Zionist state 
and the creation of the so-called uh, democratic state, sometimes it's referred to as the secular democratic state, but usually the term secular was not attached to it. It was just, you know, the, de the democratic state in which, at least on the surface, um, Arabs and Jews, you know, Muslims, Christians, and Jews would all have equal rights. Um, if you look closer at the proposal, you could see that it wasn't quite that because there were there was this expectation that a large portion of the uh, Jewish Israeli population would actually um, uh, would leave, and so it's really not um, it's not a, a very serious proposal. Um, but it's also not serious because it's just there's just no way that um, it, it can be realized um, uh, militarily. Now, what, what you see happening over the subsequent years, you know, the years after 1973, is that the Palestinian movement, and in particular Yasser Arafat, who is the chairman of the PLO, they start inching towards a compromise where they, you know, first there's all sorts of uh, qualifications and um, disclaimers, but uh, essentially they're moving closer to accepting a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, um, and essentially um, uh, disavowing or at least setting aside their claims to the rest of Palestine. And over the years, this becomes increasingly explicit. It, you know, it becomes um, official in the late 1980s, where the where the Palestinian the, uh, the PLO basically, you know. Uh, disavows its claims to the rest of Palestine and says that it is ready for a two-state settlement uh, in which a Palestinian state will live alongside Israel. Um, so essentially, so because the Palestinians have um, have scaled back their demands, have essentially become more realistic, the international community takes note of this and starts becoming more forceful about pushing this two-state settlement. And that, that's one of the reasons why I believe the 1970s are such a pivotal decade is that it's really during that decade, especially the second half, that the scenario for a two-state settlement comes into existence. Um, now, at first, neither Israel nor the United States um, embraced this idea. Carter comes pretty close to doing so. I mean, if he, if he had, didn't have to uh, think about domestic politics and other you know, diplomatic obstacles. I think Carter, you know, during his presidency, probably would have, you know, come out in favor of a two-state settlement himself. But he 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 lands somewhere short of that because of the the issue from his standpoint just isn't quite ripe yet. But in subsequent years, you get to the point where you know even the United States uh, embraces the idea of a two-state settlement. Um. The Israelis are, I mean, they, they've talked about the desirability of that, but they're not, um, they haven't made the same kinds of official undertakings that would bring that into being. And of course, I mean, a major obstacle to that is the continuing uh, colonization uh, of the West Bank, where you do have Israeli settlers um, increasing their number at a rate and you know, in various configurations that make a viable Palestinian state harder and harder to imagine. But, but nonetheless, you know, th the idea of a two-state settlement gets enshrined not just in, you know, international politics, but in American diplomacy as well. 
Salim, the the PLO, the Palestinian Palestinian Liberation Organization, which is the predecessor to uh, the Palestinian organization led by Mahmoud Abbas today, um, mm-hmm. in in the nineteen seventies, it's often depicted, at least within the United States, accurately or inaccurately, as a terrorist organization. First of mm-hmm. all, is that accurate, and how do we understand the intersection between concerns about terrorism, airplane hijackings, sure. various other events and the issues that you've laid out so well for us here? Well, I mean, the the uh, PLO back then and in subsequent years um, was a very broad-based organization, essentially a confederation of uh, many disparate parties, some of which were um, committed to acts of terrorism and, you know, act- some of which actually did commit some pretty uh, gruesome um, terrorist acts in the 1970s, as in, as in subsequent years, the position of Yasser Arafat is somewhat ambiguous in that he, one gets the sense that he's not really um, crazy about this tendency, and he would much prefer to see it uh, ended. But he also uh, feels limited in his ability to oppose some moves taken by Palestinians. Uh, in the name of liberation, uh, just because uh, these uh, these movements have uh, captured the imagination of Palestinian opinion, and to some extent have gained a certain cachet internationally, and there are also you know various you know more internecine um, disputes that he's navigating that you know from time to time make it very difficult for him to stand in the way of uh, groups like Black September. That's the organization that conducted the uh, attack on the Munich Olympics in 1972 and similar groups. And sometimes he, you know, he, he goes further and actually pays lip service or, you know, praises groups that have uh, not too long in the past committed acts of terrorism. So his, his position is definitely compromised. I mean, his hands are not clean in that respect. Um, And that of course is a, you know, a terrible political obstacle that he faces i mean in one respect it you know his his ambiguous stance on terrorism allows him <clears throat> to keep the palestinian movement united but it also serves to um blacken the name of the plo and the palestinian movement in the eyes of many outside observers is it effective, though, Salim? I mean, I, I, I'm guessing that um, leaders of Hamas would look back and say that the more radical PLO of the early 70s, when, for instance, uh, Yasser Arafat comes to the United Nations and displays a weapon in his holster, and you know that image of radicalism uh, and violence was more effective at getting attention than the, the scaling back of ambitions, as you put it before. It's really hard to say. I mean, I my overall inclination is to be, you know, very strongly opposed to uh, the use of violence, especially uh, terrorist violence. Um, uh, as a, you know, that's of course a, a more like a, a normative or moral stand. Um, you know, when it comes to looking at it analytically and, and trying to assess, you know, in as detached a way as possible. You know, to what extent this move towards violence or these moves towards violence um, helped to put the Palestinian issue on the map? I think there, there definitely there is 
a sense in which that kind of activity drew attention to the Palestinian cause and gave it a kind of visibility and stature that it might not otherwise have gained. Um, but at the same time, it's also, as I said, blackened the name of the, of the movement. Um, so I would, I guess, you know, if I had my druthers and if I could uh, wave a wand and change history, <laughs> none of this, uh, these, at least none of the uh, really heinous forms of violence would have um, taken place. I mean, obviously resisting occupation, you know, when you're confronting armed occupiers, that's a whole different um, uh, ballgame. So I would, I would definitely, I very much regret that this uh, move towards violence has occurred and has been embraced by so many. And of course, you know, even to, especially today, you know, seeing, um, you know, what it's leading to makes me all the more um, firm in that conviction. Now, even today, though, there you're going to get arguments, and they won't necessarily be um, completely off base that. The October 7th attacks revived the Palestinian issue in a way that um, perhaps few other events could have done. Um, you know, because if you think about where things were just, you know, in the weeks and days leading up to the attack with uh, Jake Sullivan, you know, kind of gloating that, oh, we've got the Middle East under control now. We're moving towards normalization between um Israel and uh, its Arab neighbors and, and Arab countries further afield, like Saudi Arabia. And the implication of all of that was we're not going to be so hung up on the Palestinian issue that, you know, the, the, the Arab states will make peace with Israel and they will um, not condition their willingness to make peace on serious movement on the Palestine issue. I mean, there, there may be some fig leaf that they demand, but seriously, you know, fundamentally, they're not letting the Palestine issue stand in their way. So there was this scenario that was coming into view of Israel normalizing relations with a whole bunch of Arab countries, especially very prosperous ones, developing all kinds of lucrative trade relations and uh, joint ventures, you know, with these wealthy Arab states, and essentially being able to continue colonizing the West Bank. And, you know, I, I was very... Uh, depressed by that scenario. I didn't see any way of breaking out of it. Now, I am utterly aghast at what happened on August, uh, on uh, October 7th, and I don't by any means favor breaking out of the impasse by those means. But that is what has happened, and the Palestine issue is on the map in, uh, in on the diplomatic agenda in ways that it wasn't Two months ago, so you know, so that's that's the kind of logic that people will invoke to make the case that uh, there is a place for this kind of violence, even though I very firmly reject that argument. I appreciate Salim the care and thoughtfulness in the way you said that, and and I think it's a it's a very reasonable position you you've adopted, Zachary. How should we understand the legacy of these uh, sort of failed? But also, to a certain extent, successful um, uh, peace agreements uh, in the 1970s, and then also, of course, the war in 73, the developments that we've been discussing. How should we understand the legacies of these events today? I'm thinking in particular uh, of their legacy uh, in regards to the creation of Hamas 
and the situation pre-October uh, 7th, which precipitated the, the current conflict? Yeah, that's a, that's a really uh, good question, a difficult one, but a good one. Um, I mean, the way I think about what was achieved in the 1970s is that it um, there's a scenario in which the moves towards greater uh, cooperation uh, between, let's say, Egypt and Israel um, in that decade could have led to broader peace settlements, but they did not. And essentially, that was what um, I think Jimmy Carter hoped for. And I think it was what uh, Anwar Sadat hoped for. But in a curious way, Anwar Sadat ultimately proved less adamant about linking peace with Israel um, between, you know, a bilateral peace between Egypt and Israel to a broader set of agreements between Israel and its other Arab neighbors, and especially uh, some arrangement for the Palestinians. So there was kind of this curious situation where Jimmy Carter, you know, he really wanted um, the bilateral agreement that he was uh, brokering between Egypt and Israel to be a stepping stone to broader agreements between Israel and other Arab countries and between Israel and the Palestinians. Um, but because of the um, kind of agreement that uh, Carter was ultimately obliged to uh, accept, and because, I, you know, frankly, the very hardline and determined stance that Menachem Begin, the Israeli prime minister at the time, took, and because of, you know, Carter had other issues on his plate that were becoming more pressing, especially the Iranian revolution. Uh, you have to think, you know, just when you think about the chronology, uh, you really get a sense of how these issues fit together. You know, the Camp David agreement, the first agreement, the one you know, actually forged at Camp David was in September 1978. The Iranian revolution erupts in the week's uh, and months right after that, by the time the um, the actual formal agreement, the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel that was um, kind of uh, blocked out in general terms at Camp David is achieved, that's March 1979. So that's a couple months after the uh, Shah has fled and uh, uh, the new Islamist government has taken over in Iran. And you know, it's not too long after that that the American hostages in Tehran get taken. So Carter's attention is increasingly um, sucked into this uh, black hole of misery that, you know, ultimately, you know, arguably ends his presidency. So you know, Carter really wasn't in a position to uh, build on the peace agreement that he had uh, brokered at Camp David in, in the way that he hoped. And in fact, there's some poignant uh, statements by Carter, you know, private statements that he makes around this time in you know, the summer of 1979 or so, where he says, wow, you know, if, if I end up leaving office without really making a dent in the Palestinian issue, uh, people will rightly say that I was a failure. And you know, sadly, that was his, his legacy, at least as far as the um, Israel-Palestine issue was concerned. Salim, it, it strikes me that one of the legacies that's unavoidable is the continued um, 
lack of uh, Palestinian statehood, that the two-state solution that you described so well doesn't come into mm-hmm. into being. And uh, looking back over this period, over the 1970s, one might have thought that things might have gone that way. The Arab states, as you say, in 1973 are united and they show that they are not as weak as they had been in 67. Right. Um, the Saudis and the other oil-rich states are able to use oil as a weapon in many ways to bring down the American economy or to uh, cause enormous pain in the United States, both at the beginning of the 1970s and the 73 period, and then also at the end of the the, the, the decade. Um, so there's rising Arab power. Um, Israel also seems to recognize, as you said, that it has to make some kind of deal with its neighbors. Um, so, so why do the Palestinians continue to be victimized? Why, why is that one of the overriding legacies from this period? Well, I mean, there are lots of complexities to that question, but you can also answer it in a very simple way, uh, which is, I would say, because of uh, the Camp David agreement. Um, It pulled Egypt out of confrontation for good. I mean, Egypt was already drifting away from its prior commitments to the other Arab countries, but it, you know, it formalized it. It formalized Egypt's removal from the conflict you know, transformed Egypt into an ally of the United States. And that really did make it um, a lot easier for Israel to uh, withstand uh, international calls for some kind of accommodation with the Palestinians. And again, you've got, uh, you know, I was just talking about poignant statements by Carter. There's another one that he makes in, um, in 1985 uh, in in a book that he wrote called the blood of Abraham Mm -hmm. in which he very, um, starkly and in, in, a, in a, a kind of self-incriminating way says that uh, what the Camp David agreement did was subtract Egyptian power from the Arab-Israeli equation, and that made it easier for Israel to continue dominating its neighbors and continuing to occupy the West Bank. Uh, he just says that very starkly. Um, and I think that's true. Um, there are, you can go a little bit further into the 20th century and look, for example, at the Oslo peace process, where there was kind of a a second chance that the parties had to really come to grips with the Israel-Palestine dispute. And you do have, I mean, a major transformation occurs in the sense that the United States recognizes the uh, Palestine Liberation Organization the Israelis, um, you know, get into dialogue with the PLO and with Yasser Arafat. You have, you actually do have the, you know, establishment of the Palestine Palestinian Authority. So there is some, there's like a a physical presence. There's a like a beachhead that the, mm-hmm. the Palestinian movement is able to establish in both the West Bank and Gaza. Um, and it, it, at least on the surface, it appears that there's an opportunity to build on that nucleus and transform it into a two-state settlement. But what, in, what happens is that the Israelis are able to continue um, expanding Jewish settlements in the West Bank. And you know, the, the, the way the agreements are, are drafted are such that you know, the Israelis are, are able to invoke certain loopholes and the, uh, the Palestinians complain, but they don't have sufficient leverage with the United States to get the Americans to take that seriously. 
Um, and of course, that gets complicated by the fact that you do have Palestinian militants who um, reject the Oslo Accords and try to um, sabotage them by engaging in increasingly um, uh, grisly terrorist attacks uh, against not just settlers in the West Bank, but you know against uh, civilians inside Israel. And that, of course, uh, gives Israel justification to conduct uh, you know massive retaliatory raids against the Palestinians. Um, and so, essentially, what happens is the um, you know the the settler population during the very decade in which the Oslo peace process is unfolding doubles, um, and so that you know for, from the standpoint of ordinary Palestinians, this is really antithetical to any notion that a two-state settlement is on the horizon. And because you know the way in which the Palestinians react against this uh, creeping annexation often takes violent forms. Um, the Israelis respond in, you know, in, with their own forms of violence, and the uh, you know you know the, the, you get this kind of vicious cycle where each side becomes more and more entrenched in its rejection of the other. I mean, I you know I, I, these issues are never simple, but I I do wish that the Clinton administration had come to grips with this settlements issue in a much more a uh, serious and thoroughgoing way when it had the opportunity to do so, um, because the I think the um, the consequences of that failure are very much with us today. Right. Uh, just one follow up question uh, on this, uh, because I think your your explanation is is so thoughtful and balanced. Um, so many Israelis um, that you and I know, and Zachary knows, and others know. Uh, want peace. Mm-hmm. Why Why in your narrative has it been so hard for Israel to pursue peace? In your narrative, uh, in your description, Israel is, is in some ways using its alliance with Egypt to avoid hard decisions with the Palestinians. Why, right. why do you think that's the case? Well, because it's also using its alliance with the United States to avoid hard decisions uh, regarding the Palestinians. And this is something that I think uh, the United States really you know, bears some responsibility for and needs to um, correct if we're going to see any serious movement on this issue. Um, I mean, I think it, it's understandable that within the context of Israeli politics, you see a move to the right um, you know, over the last couple of decades, and that it's politically very difficult for groups or politicians advocating compromise with the Palestinians to gain popular support. Uh, just because it's so easy to point to acts of really horrific violence coming from the Palestinian side and to uh, make the case that there is no suitable partner for the um, Israelis to make peace with. I think, I mean, again, these are very complicated issues, and I don't, you know, want to sound, you know, glib, and and, and you just be sitting back and pontificating and saying that it's easy to to reverse course or or change uh, the direction. Nonetheless, I think fundamentally, what needs to happen is for the United States to start to become a lot firmer with the Israelis and to set clearer limits on what the United States will tolerate. In that context. 
that would, in my view, create political space for forces within Israel that wish to take a more conciliatory stance towards the Palestinians. Um, Because essentially, the only limits against which Israel is brushing up, the only limits it encounters are the limits imposed by its immediate adversaries. Uh, there, There aren't really significant diplomatic constraints or other kinds of constraints being imposed by the United States. Uh, I'll give you an example of, a, of an instance where that occurred and was promising and, you know, make the case that that kind of thing needs to happen again. Back in the early 90s, um, there, uh, when Yitzhak Shamir was the uh, prime minister, you know, he wanted a, uh, a loan guarantee from the first Bush administration. Um, is, and the uh, President Bush refused to extend that guarantee or refused to sign off on it um, unless he could get a commitment from Shamir that there would be a cessation of settlement building in uh, the occupied territories. This created a huge diplomatic crisis between the United States and Israel. And um, there was enormous pressure on Bush to, to back down. And he didn't. He stuck to his guns. And eventually, that resulted in the uh, a, a change of government inside Israel because uh, figures on the on the more dovish labor labor side were able to say, "Look, this is what happens when we follow the approach of Likud and uh, figures like Shamir. We get into a confrontation with the one country whose help." we cannot afford to lose. So if you follow our approach, the more dovish Labor Party approach, we will restore our good relationship with the United States, and that will be better for Israel's security. And that worked, and it resulted in the election of uh, Yitzhak Rabin in place of Shamir. Now, there are, there are ways in which uh, Bush subsequently dropped the ball um, that uh, caused the victory that he had uh, achieved on the settlements issue to be a Pyrrhic one, which I can go into if you wish, but I don't think that's important. But what it shows is the ability of the United States, if it uh, flexes some diplomatic muscle, to affect change inside Israel. And I think in the when those sorts of things start to happen on the Israeli side, I think that also empowers moderate forces on the Palestinian side. In, in situations like the one we're in now, with uh, situations of polarization, that tends to strengthen hardliners on each side. I mean, it's more complicated in Israel now because uh, Netanyahu is so unbelievably unpopular. Um, but in, un, absent those complicating political issues, the general dynamic is one in which the more polarization, the more violence you get, the uh, stronger hardliners on each side become. Sure, so I think sure. in a situation in which the United States is, is uh, exercising greater leverage that's nudging the Israelis toward a more conciliatory position, that will make it easier for moderate form of forces on the Palestinian side to assert themselves. And this certainly won't happen overnight, but I think you could start the uh, start a process that ultimately results in the political uh, diminution of Hamas. I mean, we're far from that now, but we that's where we need to start heading. 
Right, which is the opposite of uh, full-scale siege warfare uh, in Gaza. Exactly, exactly. Zachary, I, I want to turn to you now. Uh, Salim has has given us a tour de force here. Uh, he's in, in in thirty to five minutes, forty minutes. He's provided a, a a really thoughtful, balanced, rigorous overview of an entire decade and its legacies for today, or many of its legacies for today. Um, and I know you have been deeply involved in debates about these policy issues on campus with other students. We discussed this in our prior episode. How do you react to, to Salim's um, historical framing for what you're debating today among students and, and others regarding uh, this region of the world? I think it's very helpful, certainly, in pointing to, to places, uh, lost opportunities, and, and hopefully lays out a series of, of, of mistakes that, that cannot be made again. Um, I worry, though, about the... the I, I think that maybe one of the things it points to as well is a sort of dilemma that... And a sort of maybe a con- contradictory forces uh, that, 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 that are shaping the, the problem today, which is that in order for there to be a sort of viable moderate Palestinian uh, uh, force with which Israel can make peace. Uh, there has to be a moderate sort of political force in Israel willing to make peace. But in order for that to occur, there has to be uh, a, a sort of cessation cessation of, um, of, of radical Palestinian violence that enables, um, enables those on the far right in Israel. And so, and I think uh, one of the key lessons that at least I will take from Professor Yakub's uh, very, very helpful um, analysis and, and, and history for us is the importance of the role of the United States in maybe catalyzing that process in, at the very least, uh, putting our thumb on the scales to, 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 to sort of break out of, of that cycle and of that um, sort of constant um, uh, sort of lost opportunity, if you will. Yeah, yeah, no, I I think one of the real strengths, one of the many strengths of of uh, Salim's account and his scholarship, is that it, it it doesn't make the United States all powerful. Far from it, but it does show um, how the United States might be the one actor that can play a role at certain moments in bringing the, the different sides together or, or pushing them apart. Um, I think there, Salim's account gives us evidence of, of both of those things. Uh, as, as a final word, Salim, if, if you had um, a few seconds with President Biden, then what would, what would you say as a historian that, that he should be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be uh, the point that I made most recently just about the need to to show some greater firmness and to really attend to the the details um particularly regarding what's happening on the west bank um i think you know one when i said that uh, george hw bush uh, eventually dropped the ball um he allowed the you know the the next president uh, yitzhak rabin to um uh, essentially um, use a form of words to get around the settlement issue. Uh, what, what Yitzhak Rabin said was, you're right, President Bush, uh, there should be no more uh, additional Jewish settlements uh, in the West Bank. I will s- seize the 
uh, building of new settlements. But what he then promptly did was start expanding existing settlements, and you know Bush accepted that uh, that distinction. Uh, but you know, from the standpoint of the Palestinians, it really was not a, a difference at all. So I, I would say that you just you need to pay really close attention to the details of what's taking place, and you know to think about their impact on all of the parties to th- this dispute. And I think Salim, that's a, a perfect place for us to not really close, but sort of uh, <laughs> bring, no bring this, this issue. No, but bring this discussion to a point. Uh, I, I I think what your scholarship displays and what you have provided today are, are two lessons for us. Above all, you know, one is that close attention to the history really matters. The events that we're living with today uh, reflect long-developing, many long-developing historical trajectories, and we can't really understand them. And we certainly shouldn't take sides before we understand this history. We have to pause and spend some time to look at where we've come from. And that second to that, that one can speak for the interests, as I think you have, the historical interests of Palestinians without in any way... Um, embracing um, the most extreme forms of violence, which you have clearly renounced and also argued are, are ineffective, <laughs> in fact. Right. Um, and and I, think, I think that's really important. One, one doesn't have to give up on the Palestinian cause or the Israeli cause because the more extreme voices and extreme actors are the ones that, that are getting the most attention. Absolutely. So, uh, Salim, thank you for educating us, for providing us uh, a, a really valuable and missing background for most of our discussions. I hope our listeners will take what you say, read more, and uh, think deeply uh, before they jump to, to conclusions one way or another in this in this conflict. Um, Salim, it's really been a, a pleasure and an honor to have you on our podcast. Thank you for joining us. Jeremy and Zachary, thank you so much. It was wonderful to have this conversation. And Zachary, thank you for your poem that that I think resonates with so Absolutely. many of the themes. And uh, thank yep. you for your questions. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.